Report from Inside a White Whale. Biblioteca Vasconcelos in Mexico City holds a massive white whale skeleton. I once climbed inside the belly on a visit. I did it knowing that one day Cali will be gone, the whole state swallowed by water, my body a boat with holes, my limbs in need of a ship. I found a man named Jonah in the gullet taking field notes. I asked him to serve as my witness. You should always have someone to record. A historian, a spouse, or a child will do just fine. We made music in the bowels of that beast. Jonah spit when he talked. We were bone thugs in harmony, joined at the crossroads of wildfire and reverie like knuckleheads of stone and skin. Our outer limits flanked with the flood of the blues, the archaeology of loss afloat. I never once asked Jonah to cover his mouth, but I believe I understood what he was saying. How dare the two of us make art when God has ordered us to drown. This is Queers at the End of the World, the podcast where the terrible capybarapods come squirming out at night to bathe their many limbs. I'm your host, Nina. And I'm your host, Nat. And today on Queers at the End of the World, we're talking to the poet, librarian, and educator, Allison Rollins. Allison's going to read some work from her magnificent book, Library of Small Catastrophes, and talk about her experience in 2020 of participating in a survival course in the Arizona desert. After watching the reality television series Dual Survival, Allison actually signed up for a survival course by one of the folks who had been on Dual Survival. It was really interesting to hear about her experience of doing things like starting a fire, building a pack out of natural materials, and surviving with this group of people who had signed up for an experience with a reality TV star during a pandemic. You know, it's so interesting that you say that, Nat, because I feel like for a lot of folks in America, probably white folks, especially the pandemic is this totally new experience of like thinking about your body and being worried when you're outside in the world. And one of the things that really comes up in this interview with Alison Rollins is the very different ways it can feel to be embodied outside in America, depending on the body that you have and whether you're made to feel safe or welcome in your body, in the wilderness. It's a complex experience, and I'm so excited that we get to talk to Allison about that, about survival, and the body's archive, and hazmat suits, and poetry. It's such a pleasure. And when inevitably after this conversation you want to hear more from her, we strongly suggest that you go listen to the recent episode of the Poetry Podcast, where Allison speaks with writer and farmer Latria Graham about time, and poetry, and wilderness, and black nature joy. It's an incredible episode, and we hope you'll go listen to that fantastic conversation, too. So, Allison, will you tell us a little bit about what wilderness survival has meant to you in your life? Sure. So, I grew up in the city of St. Louis, Missouri, which always felt like an othered, weird type of space because while it's in the Midwest, as a product of the Missouri Compromise, you know, it was a slaveholding state, but it's also not quite the South. But in the summers, I would spend those on the farm of my paternal grandparents, and that was located in Maywood, Missouri. Mm -hmm. 
So we would drive to their farm and I would have this truly rural kind of off the grid experience, but again, still like in the state of Missouri, but in sort of the sticks. So my understanding or notion of wilderness was very much attached to being on their property. While I didn't probably as a child connected to survivalism necessarily, um, there was a type of kind of um, self-sustaining culture that I think my grandparents made where it was this kind of oasis of a farmhouse. My grandmother had what she called a she shed. So a shed separate to the property um, where we would play checkers in God awful heat. There was no air conditioning or fan in there. <laughs> Just be sitting in the woodshed um, playing checkers or doing little activities. And so my experience then I, when I think about the wild or nature or being in the environment was often in that context. Um, the notion of survivalism in nature in particular, I think is something I've been interested in most recently because I'm coming up on, I guess, two years that I've now been living in Colorado Springs, Colorado. And living in the Southwest, I think kind of the iconography or the language here is much more attached to like the Wild West or the West um, in a way that I've never experienced or lived in before. So I think that in a contemporary sense more closely connects me to like uh, going to REI or going to do nature hikes. And I can see mountains from my house now. So looking out at the mountains or taking kind of nature walks, or it's a much more lifestyle kind of geographically driven city in proximity to like nature and then more more extremely to, to survivalism or survival culture. That's so interesting. Like thinking about that word wild too, you know, like all of the different meanings that are attached to it just like the idea of wilderness, like what wild means in wilderness versus what wild means in, in the idea of the wild west. Like the idea of nature on a farm, it being this kind of like in-between space of like, you know, natural beauty, but but also like so domestic and so much home. And then out in Colorado, it like means this whole different thing. Like nature means wilderness. That's so interesting. Yeah. I feel like you're really representing something I've also noticed in the times that I visited um, Montana, which is almost this obligation to go out and be in it or a sense of like, why are you here if you're not doing it? Yeah, I like that notion. I, there was an article I stumbled on last night, I think in an Audubon journal, or it was discussing, it was talking about Toni Morrison's fascination with birds. Um, and in the article, I guess maybe the interviewer who had had a working relationship with Toni Morrison and had worked on her last documentary had given Morrison a copy of like a bird watching guide or something. And Morrison apparently took it and rolled her eyes. It was just like, I don't want like Morrison had this notion of like letting birds come to her or this notion of like, I am interested very much in the natural world, the natural landscape in birds in particular in my prose. But I don't have the need or the obligation is the word that you use to be out seeking them or to know the classification systems for them and their exact calls. And there's a different type of relationship to kind of just being in a place, but not necessarily feeling that you need to conquer and name it or be actively pursuing it that I think is really interesting and often like undervalued to your point. Like maybe I'm just in Montana to be in Montana. Yeah. <laughs> That's so resonant for me and really connects with a lot of what 
Um, Nina and I have been talking about just with this weird pressure around like what's real or a, a legitimate or a quote unquote pure experience of being in nature and just how arbitrary that whole idea is that there would be a version of nature that's like, I don't know, less good or something. And, you know, both of us feeling very suspicious of of that narrative or some of the way I see it um, sold to people in in the REI context and so forth. Well, I think the even the term wild to return to that is so fraught for certain subject positions. So as a black person, like much of racist um, conceptualizations of blackness are steeped in making black people appear bestial or subhuman. Um, and that can be extended to a variety of different marginalized subject positions. Then I might be doing things in order to ensure that my humanity be made legible. I might be living a life or doing things that create a stark contrast to me being in the wilderness or me being labeled in a way that could seem wild. Um, and so there's a tension there in terms of like, there's a kind of armor that takes place where it's like, if I go to REI and I have the really expensive gear and backpack and I adorn or costume myself as a nature person, then maybe I'll be treated differently or viewed differently as opposed to if I'm just a black person out and about, quote unquote, in the wild, um, which a lot of racist histories would suggest is like my natural habitat or, you know, the connecting, especially of black women to primates or, or monkeys, like this notion that um, certain groups of people are inherently subhuman. And sometimes that can create um, kind of a problematic dynamic in terms of how are certain bodies perceived in the quote unquote wild or natural environment, or even in a more racist term, like habitat, if you will, like there's a, a very fraught um, relationship to how my body may be perceived in the space of the wilderness as opposed to others. Yeah, that makes so much sense to me. You know, of course, Nina and I both prepared for this interview um, by listening to your conversation on the Poetry Foundation podcast. And what you're saying now just reminds me of um, the conversation you had with Latria Graham about just having to monitor everything all the time. And, you know, regardless of if you're in the wilderness or if you're um, just walking down the street in a suburb or in an urban environment, it doesn't matter if it's wilderness or not. There is this sense of if you're a Black woman and you're walking around, you have to be thinking, do I need to be invisible? Do I need to be um, on alert as to how I'm behaving, how other people are behaving? It's just a totally different mindset than the way I've thought about it as a white person where, you know, for me, it's, it's often been through this lens of like, you know, how difficult of wilderness can you experience? You know, how many days can you go backpacking? And it just makes me realize that that is a very particular um, kind of white lens on like the way you would enter into the idea of experiencing nature that comes from this idea of like, I don't know, like hierarchy or something like that. And just thinking about this idea of like having to um, signal certain things by the clothes you're wearing, it, it, it just, it made a huge impression on me. Um, it changed the way I thought about my own experiences and also the experiences of um, folks who want to go and be in nature, um, who don't have the same 
type of orientation and the same privilege that I have to just sort of, you know, roll on out there and like see see how hard I can make it or whatever. Yeah, prior to to doing my um, survival course, I became really kind of obsessive about the notion of um, having my driver's license on me at all times. We, we were so far off the grid that I didn't have a phone. I didn't have any form of GPS. I didn't have a watch even. And so again, I was with all, all the other participants in the course were white persons. Um, and so in Arizona, if I, as a person of color, and I sometimes look kind of ethnically ambiguous depending on where I am, but I'm definitely of color. Um, if someone stops me or asks me what I'm doing on this piece of property, or if I'm in, found in the middle of nowhere, um, there's a different set of questions I think that would take place by that outside party than if I were white. And so um, I kept in a small, like snack size Ziploc bag, my driver's license, and maybe I had like a hundred dollars cash, which has no meaning when you're in the wilderness. It's like, money means nothing, <laughs> but that I kept on me on, I had a, um, what do you, a fanny pack. So I kept those in a secret pouch in my fanny pack and it wouldn't really have mattered, but it made me have some level of false, um, protection that at least this piece of plastic, which also has no meaning would communicate to someone that I am, you know, an American citizen. I have a district of Columbia, so a DC driver's license that I have a right to be here, which is highly problematic and also has a, a high level of privilege attached to it, even though I'm a person of color. And so having the, whether it's your driver's license, a birth certificate, a passport, these pieces of paper and plastic that communicate our right to be at a certain coordinate on the globe or in a certain place at a moment in time, um, they're, so, they're so politically charged and there's so much power in them um, that also kind of runs very much contrary to this notion of exploring or backpacking. We're just going to go to, you know, France and backpack. And, like other people have kind of these orientations of like, I'm going to get Airbnbs in Spain and just see what happens. But for people of color, it becomes a bit more um, tenuous or you kind of have to kind of double check and look into protection and safety in maybe different ways. I mean, that is making me think so much of, we focused in on a particular part of one of the YA books we talked about, which is My Side of the Mountain. And there is this part in that book where, you know, it's just this teen, young teenager kind of goes out and it, it's very cute and not terribly realistic. It's not trying to be realistic, but he, he like lives in the woods inside this hollow tree. And one of the things that is a part of that story is the place he goes to in the woods is land that's sort of somehow owned by his family. And when we were talking about this, we were just like, <laughs> it's interesting how in this like stereotypical narrative of like white masculinity in the woods, like mm -hmm. he's literally on land that his like ancestral family supposedly owns according to the story. And just the fact that you have this like kid who's just like, oh, th it's just my family's land. So I don't have to think about things like if someone showed up here. And it's just so, so clarifying to, to hear a concrete example, like you saying, I put my 
driver's license in my stuff because of how real of a threat this is. Um, there is no way that I have any um, sense of safety even going out into the woods where money is meaningless. Exactly. Yes. And also the inherent fear that I know I'm wise enough to know that if someone questioned me or decided they didn't care what my driver's license said, that there would still be conflict. Like it doesn't really actually mean anything. Um, it's not going to grant me any protection. Um, man, you know, we were talking about this idea of like feeling like even in wilderness, there is a sense of threat and needing to bring a driver's license. And I was thinking the next question to ask would be, you know, so how did you make the decision to take the wilderness survival course you went to? And what was that like for you? Like, I'm just really interested in the whole process of, you know, deciding to do it and then experiencing it. Sure. Yeah. So it's a kind of um, circuitous story. I um, am divorced and I was previously married. And at the time I was leaving um, a pretty toxic, unhealthy partnership. And my mother and I had packed up all of my belongings. Um, I was staying in an extended stay hotel in Virginia and living in Washington, D.C. And um, we were in the hotel every night in this uh, twin size bed together, an extended stay America, I remember distinctly. And on TV every night were um, kind of marathon episodes of the Discovery Channel show, Dual Survival. And um, the show has always had kind of two white male co-stars that have different kind of sensibilities or approaches to survival culture and methodology. And the season we were on was Cody Lundeen, who... Um, is known as having these kind of primitive or he has developed his own Aboriginal living skills school. So he was kind of more of the bohemian, earthy, Southwestern figure um, who would wear his hair. And he still to date wears his hair in two pigtail braids with pieces of fabric, like purple fabric and string braided into them. So he was kind of the hipster one. And he famously refuses to wear shoes. So throughout the show, he would be in these really rough terrains, extreme cold and desert heat, wearing barefoot. And then he was paired with Joe Teddy, who was a former like special ops Marine. So he was kind of the, um, you know, government, military based, like secret agent kind of training, government centered, patriotic training. Um, and so my mom, for whatever reasons, really took uh, a liking to Cody Lundeen. And as though we were watching kind of a football game, she just started cheering Cody on through each episode <laughs> and just becoming like enamored with him. And so it was really, really cute. And when I think back on that time in my life, which was a fairly traumatic time, a time also of me like in literal real terms, trying to survive um, an abusive marriage or relationship, like we reflect or talk about it lightheartedly in terms of like watching Cody on this TV show. And the TV show becomes this kind of, um, I guess, metaphor for what it was that we were trying to do together as mother and daughter at the time. And when I moved to Colorado, I just thought that I would look up 
what Cody Lundin was doing now. You know, like they have those articles when people get kicked off shows or leave shows, like what are they up to now? And I realized that he lives in Arizona and runs his own school. So I was like, oh my gosh, this is so, so cool. Like I never imagined really that I was going to be living and working in Colorado. So I looked up the, um, the course listings, the classes that he teaches, and I realized I could sign up for a class. So around that time also, or, or maybe a year or so before, I had received a fellowship through the National Endowment for the Arts. So a quite large amount of money to um, travel and to pursue research for my writing endeavors. Um, this is all pre-COVID. So in my application for the fellowship, I had said, like, I want to go to Berlin. I'm going to look at the Audre Lorde archives in Berlin. And I want to, like, research queer history in Europe. I was going to do all these cool things. But um, when COVID happened, it became evident I wasn't going to be able to travel internationally, if at all, even nationally. Um, but I paid for um, Cody's class, and it was non-refundable. <laughs> and um, so I said, I guess I'll just still, I'll go on the class. So really, it was about kind of getting to meet this sort of reality TV celebrity figure um, that became iconic of a particularly mo a tender moment in my own life. Um, and having the opportunity to work with them like in real time, to go like live out the TV show in real life um, as a poet writer. Um, so that's what kind of became the, the idea behind it. But because of COVID and as I got closer to going to more and more people, including my loved ones, it became like, you should definitely not do that. Like you definitely should not <laughs> be doing that. So it became just the, the stakes just got higher and higher and higher as life happens, as it actually kind of then occurred. But well, coming, I mean, from this experience, it sounds like almost like, you know, these different kinds of survival being acted out in, in life and on the screen and then going to like actually to do the course. What was it like to step into that reality? Sure. I'll say another thing that's amazing about my, um, my tribe of close friends, uh, a good friend of mine, um, Fatima Askar, who's a poet, she she told me, we, I was talking with her and with Safia Elhio, who's another poet, we were talking about me going. And Fatima was like, you should really reach out and see if you can get a copy of the itinerary. Like if you can have him tell you what you're going to be doing every day, what an average day would look like, like that might help kind of ease your anxiety or help you feel better about it. Uh, another suggestion she made was, you know, like, um, survivors of sexual assault, like it, it would be nice if he could maybe give you like their policies on um, sexual assault or sexual malpractice, or like if you could get policies about how people are going to be expected to behave. So she had all these great <laughs> suggestions that a lot of like queer folk or organizers or people that center like gender nonconforming identities would think about, yeah, right? Yeah. But it was like, None of those things were like none of those things were offered, nor did I ask for them. Mm -hmm. Um because that's not like the like when you think about what it means to be like an outdoorsman, to go into a space and be um resourceful and an outdoorsman, it does not include any of those type of any of those type of things. So um when I got there, a lot of our days were based on um the first six days of the course 
were us learning skills and making things to be used for the last three days where we were going to reduce our amount of gear even further, like really, really kind of live as close to quote unquote primitively as possible. Um, And what I learned is that Cody every day was planning our days really based in relationship to nature. So I didn't have any access, nor did he, towards knowing what the weather was going to be, for example. Mm. So on the first two days, if it decided to pour down rain, or that was like the rainy season in the desert in Arizona, we were given, um, we did have, we were allowed to bring a rain poncho, but we also had plastic bags. Uh, What do you call it? Garbage bags, plastic industrial garbage. So that's what we were going to use as kind of a shelter for our bodies to protect against rain. And there were certain activities, including like fire making that we couldn't have done if it was raining. So literally every day, Cody kind of um, spur of the moment improvised what it was that we were going to be doing based on however the weather was. So there really wasn't a way we could be provided with an itinerary or know what was going to happen which is very anxiety inducing for me. I like structure. I like knowing like what's <laughs> happening. It's comforting. Um, so each day we did different things. So some of the things we had to make for the last three days, one was we made from cattails, which grow along the riverbank. We cut them and we laid them out to dry in the sun. And then we wove them into a mat. And that's what we used as our sleeping mat um, for the last three days. We were given um, gourds. We didn't find gourds in the desert, so we were given those, luckily. But we um, cut them open and scraped them out with rocks and um, sticks, basically. And we let them kind of cure in the sun. And the gourd was our drinking container, our kind of canteen for the last three days. Um, We learned how to make the structure... Um, It's called a bow drill to make fire. So you have a device, a piece of wood that's called the hearth. And then you're kind of using based on friction and force a bow piece of wood to rub against another stick to create an ember. So we had made the tools to make fire. Oh, I also constructed an actual backpack, a pack frame from wood. So using three pieces of wood, we constructed a triangular shaped um, pack which we used the last three days as we ventured from the uh, base camp. So I constructed an actual wooden backpack, if you will. I think I saw that photograph of y'all like marching yeah. the wilderness with, with these like bundles of wood on your backs. Yes, 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 we, we did. And we also um, learned how to finger weave with string rope, like basically to make a strap for our gourds and also to attach the um, wooden packs. How does it feel to sort of have those skills now? It's hard because without practice, you lose things. That's the rough thing about how memory is slippery. And it's also, I remember distinctly being really frustrated. We'd also, I mean, imagine if someone was like, okay, I'm going to teach you Nat or Nita, I'm going to teach you in an hour how to make these different pieces to make a fire. Mm -hmm. So you have two hours until the sun goes down to make it. And if you if the sun goes down, the sun goes down, you'll have to start again tomorrow. And we're doing new things tomorrow. Mm -hmm. So like very pressure intense. It wasn't we didn't have electricity. So you have from sun up to sun down to get things done. And then I had no skill with carving. So some of the other people on the trip were like woodworkers or kind of craftsmen. Again, I didn't, I've only used knives to cook. So 
a lot of things I was a lot more slow at getting them or figuring them out um, and would get a lot more frustrated. And I remember particularly something Cody would say to like comfort me and others was like, it's okay. You haven't done this for thousands of years. Like you're like you, it's been thousand, 2000 years since you had to do these skills. And so it became this notion of like, there are all these lost arts that um, are kind of now not really necessary, but that I'm having to do very quickly or learn very quickly now in the moment. Mm. Um, and so time became flattened in a very odd way. So now I'm sure like most of these things I'll forget or in another year I won't be able to do, uh, which is a kind of grieving or loss, mm. but it was cool to, I guess, at least try. Oh, wow. I mean, th- that idea though, like talking about slippery memory, <laughs> like like trying to hold on to things that you like maybe had from a thousand years ago and then like will you have next month like that is I mean especially you know for you as a librarian and an archivist I think one of the things that that I was just really excited to ask you about is how how like how you experience time and and history in the context of of that place while you were you know while you were doing this survival like survival course and just thinking about wilderness in general like I think one of the th- one of the ideas that we talk about a lot um, when we're thinking about these like YA survivalist books is this idea of pure wilderness and the way it connects to uh, to colonialist map making and the erasure of what's already there that like sort of creates this pure blank space that settlers can then write themselves over right like and just like this idea of aboriginality in the course name and this idea of like primitive skills or something that's like that's a skill that you have is that's a thousand years old. Like it feels simultaneously connected to that framing of wilderness and indigenous and indigenousness and indigenous people, even that's, that's like really false and harmful as like in the past. Um, but also kind of framing your experience there as time travel. And yeah, it just makes me wonder like, what is it like to experience the wilderness as an archivist and, is there room for memory and history and like the present in your wilderness survival experiences? Yeah. So in that question, I think of kind of two major schools of thought. So the first as an archivist is we, especially in Western culture, kind of a a Western white supremacist patriarchal culture are very obsessed with um, the notion of things lasting in perpetuity or a type of immortalism or a type of preservation that we find in like our uh, understanding of museum studies or what it means to capture artifacts to be kept and maintained in, in museums. Um, and I think that there is a there is a different or alternative worldview that um, allows for a more um, natural or healthy or holistic relationship to the notion of things being ephemeral mm-hmm. or um, a healthy relationship to loss. Like not everything needs to or can or will last forever and that's okay. Um, or I think I was raised Catholic. So like the notion on Ash Wednesday of like from dust you came into dust you shall return. Yeah. Um, there are indigenous ways of viewing that in terms of we make things to be used And once they serve their purpose or disintegrate, they go back into the earth or that's part of the life cycle, not to kind of hoard or keep things forever, have these massive trash dumps of plastic and things that really don't ever biodegrade or break down. Um, And so I'm always thinking about like on both 
an actual like physical artifact level, but also also on the level of our bodies. Like how much can you really ask your mind to genuinely um, hold for also how long? Um, how much on a cellular level can you ask your body to hold um, consciously or unconsciously? And so whether it's our brain as a container, whether it's our physical bodies as a container of all of these cells, um, whether it's our homes or our actual like physical libraries, our cell phone even, like what, how much are we asking these structures to hold? Um, and what is their capacity? Like they all have a bandwidth or capacity. Um, and so in thinking about memory or in thinking about even like bodily trauma or cultural trauma, historical trauma, um, how are we letting things go? How are we like allowing for catharsis? And then what are we holding on to either knowingly or unknowingly? And then I think the second, the part B school of thought um, in your mentioning of um, the, like the use of terms like primitive or aboriginal, when I went on the, the survival course, Cody has traveled all over the world, meeting with people from South America to the continent of Africa, like to discuss all types of modern survival practices. Mm. But in the context of the United States, um, like two survival texts that were referenced throughout the trip, maybe you all will read these on the podcast, are the book um, Alive, right. which is the story of the, the, the rugby player that crashed. Um, so that book was referenced all the time. And a lot of people on the survival course had read it. I've purchased it, but not read it yet. And the other book is um, The Long Walk, which um, documents six prisoners that escaped a Soviet labor camp and then walked across um, Siberia, China, Tibet, et cetera, wow. barefoot. Um, and so these were the texts that were mentioned, but there was like little to no mention of form like enslaved black persons escaping enslavement um, or even very little mention kind of other than in passing of indigenous like Apache or Native American groups that were living on the lands prior to us conquering or taking them. Um, and so there's a weird like invisibility that happens for like commonplace survival, I'll call it, even yeah. though it's not commonplace. Like for indigenous persons to survive mass genocide, for the descendants of enslaved black people to still be living, that's a miraculous type of survival, but it doesn't have the same like appeal of like the Andes rugby players that were like resorted to cannibalism and were like, you know, trying to figure out, like it's very hatchet-like actually. I think Alive is kind of like grown man hatchet. Um, yeah. Those stories become much more interesting for some reason to people um, than like the regular survival, or, like what it means to even be a trans black woman in this world trying to survive in an urban space. Like that arguably doesn't count in survivalist culture or language as a survival story or some miraculous trek through the wilderness or something left to your own devices. And so it's interesting, like the ways things get contextualized and valued. Um, in relationship to who's the one kind of doing the storytelling. So like, I think Cody Lundin is maybe um, Swedish. I think he had like some Swedish. It, it was just, it's just like a man who looks quite Nordic. Mm. If you can imagine the kind of dirty blonde braids. Yeah. <laughs> leading or using the language of what it means to be Aboriginal. Yeah, for sure. And that we paid thousands of dollars, including myself, to learn from him. Yeah. Right. 
like he in that space is the authority figure. He's the founder, the head, the dean, if yeah. you will. He wouldn't call himself a dean, but like the president of the school. And um, he kind of just runs it on federal land. It's not like he owns the land or the property or there's like an actual school building or something. Like we would just be in mass expanses of desert and there would randomly be barbed wire and like really old timey looking like fences. Mm. And I remember asking like, what are these fences for? And they were like, oh, well, um, it's to keep cattle ranchers like cows. They don't want them going in certain areas or cows accessing certain water or you need permits to be in certain parts of the land. And it's like we've created all of these things like permits, boundaries, city lines, state lines that don't mean anything. (laughs) When you're out there, it really doesn't matter or mean anything, but they really do dictate where you can be and go. Yeah. Um, and especially in connection to water, I really developed a newfound appreciation for like how, like a government system can tell you, like you might have water of like a a fresh spring, let's say by your home, the government can tell you, you can no longer access or use that water or you need a permit to use that. And so then natural resources become these things that the people don't actually have access to Mm. or arbitrarily suddenly there's this line that's drawn that says you're you can't be here you need to pay an amount of money to be in this space and kind of you need a map to know what those lines are but a map is a social construct like these are all constructed things yeah I was gonna say I mean it makes me think about like this you know like you're talking about like what the like needing boundaries or parameters like wanting an itinerary and going into this and wanting that because of like the kinds of anxieties that are learned for survival in the world <laughs> as like a, as like a queer person and a femme person and a black person. And like the, the parameters that are placed around, like what is a legitimate survival experience are like this other set. <laughs> it's like, it's, it's a, it's a world you can step into where one set of parameters like become sort of culturally, culturally deemed irrelevant. And then, this other set of parameters of like what constitutes a survival experience and what doesn't, you know, like it's very important that it be like this one, you know, like, you know, like a w- one walk or one, one plane crash or something, as opposed to surviving a whole system over decades and centuries. Yes. Yes. Which ties back to your question of time, right? I was like, um, if I'm backpacking for the summer versus I'm backpacking because my housing is now unstable or I like, like what is the control over time? And also what is the relationship to um, like vi- the, a term like vacation versus travel or a term like kind of roughing it backpacking versus going to a resort mm-hmm. or, um, you know, for me, if I'm going to pay thousands of dollars, like I kind of want to have a relaxing vacation. If I, if I go to yeah. my, Montana, maybe I just want to like, or something like maybe I don't want to do these rigorous activities because I just want to relax I'm tired right (laughs) and it sounds like there were a lot of things going into why to do that for you too I, I I'm thinking about um these things that you're saying about time and what we keep with us and what we and what we kind of give back into the grand system and and like what stays in memory. And it's making me think a lot of one of my favorite poems in your book, A Library of Small Catastrophes, which is Elephant Born Without Tusks. Um, mm-hmm. would, you mind, would you mind reading it for us? Sure. Elephants Born Without Tusks. The Washington Post says that green burials are on the rise as baby boomers plan for their futures. 
their graves marked with sprouting mushrooms, little kneecaps crawling up from the dirt skin, like Michael Brown decomposing into the concrete, ending as a natural product of the environment. Elephants are now being born without tusks, their genetics having studied the black market, DNA a spiral ladder carefully carved from wooden teeth of founding fathers. Never let a chromosome speak for you. It will only tell a myth, an ode to the survival of the fittest. Peppered moths are used to teach natural selection. Their changes in color an instance of evolution. Birds unable to see dark moths on soot-covered trees. The number of blacks always rising with industry. Life is the process of erosion, an inevitable wearing down of the enamel, the gums posing the threat of disease. Most websites suggest biodegradation, a coffin made from pine or wicker. The man in the paper said, I want to be part of a tree, be part of a flower, go back to being part of the earth. I imagined my mother then, her short cropped hair like freshly cut grass, immune to the pains of mowing. The natural burial guide for turning yourself into a forest sits waiting in my Amazon shopping cart. Pink salmon have now evolved to migrate earlier. I am familiar with this type of middle passage, a loved one watching you move on without a trace, the living inheriting an ocean of time, the sun rewiring the water-damaged insides, cells desiring to go back where they came from, certain strands of your kind now extinct. Thank you. And one of the things that totally amazes me about that poem, and I, I think it's just one of the very few cultural artifacts that I've ever gotten to interact with that makes space for this idea of natural selection, which is like survival in the wilderness on like the grandest possible scale. But it thinks about the survival as, as a kind of becoming. And it makes me wonder whether, and I think in some ways you've, you've talked about this already, but like how becoming is connected to the idea of survival for you. Yeah, I love that question because um, I think about our former first lady, Michelle Obama's memoir um, oh, yeah. titled Becoming. <laughs> I think it was published maybe the same year as this book, as Library of Small Catastrophes. And so there's a bookstore in Chicago, Women and Children First, where for a period, I think the posters for our books, Michelle Obama's and I, were in the window together. Nice. I am more fascinated with the notion of unbecoming than I am with becoming primarily because often when we say somebody like your attitude today is unbecoming that or so like it's it's like a flaw in character <laughs> or um like you know you're alternative to a fault or something or you're not interested in respectability politics and i think i came into an understanding of my queerness later in life and i think time kind of started over or like the whole process of understanding even like romance or intimacy kind of like started all over again, if that makes sense. Like I kind of had a second coming of age, if you will. And so I've been really curious about this notion of like unbecoming, becoming, unbecoming as a circle or like a spiral 
um, rather than kind of a linear straight line moving from one point to another. And there are a variety of ways, I think, for people that are especially trying to imagine ways of being in the world and, and ways of just simply being that are not becoming, that are not socially acceptable, that are not um, buying into very rigid notions of gender, a gender binary world or a world in which um, race has to necessarily be connected to social injustice or inequity. And so I think the concept of unbecoming um, I'm interested in like subversively redefining that as a positive or um, a more circular and spiral relationship to the constant process of like making and unmaking to become and unbecome over and over again that we hopefully do if we're like living and evolving as as beings in the world. Yeah. I love that so much. That's just so resonant for me with my own experience of queerness as well is so We've been talking about go bags on this podcast, um, disaster readiness kit, 72-hour kit, whatever you want to call it. And it's kind of this device for us to think about some of these things um, more so than an occasion to necessarily be putting one together at this moment. Um, so it's sort of an, an, an errand of building an imaginary queer go bag. <laughs> <laughs> and um the 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 question is is as serious or as silly as you want to make it but um what's something that you would put in yours oh man if i had to think of i guess top 3 items for a go bag um one would be based on my experience um the last 3 days of the survival course we moved to an area that had um, like the water was compromised. So it was river water that we had to treat with iodine and um, iodine tastes like if you could imagine, I've never tried embalming fluid, (laughs) embalming fluid mixed with leather kind of like smell and or taste in a gourd. That's how that tasted. And so I was like, oh my, it was horrible. So I would have some type of water purification device that lasts forever um, that also treats for taste. Because while you don't want like a microbe, a waterborne like virus or something, you also want it to taste decent. Yes. Um, So that would be first. Second after that would probably be some type of like long lasting sex toy of some, some sort. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Self-pleasuring that has batteries that never die or doesn't need to be charged in a wall. And then I think third would be, since you said I could, it could be impractical. I'd have to find some way to like drag all of my physical books, some type of way. <laughs> yeah. I've, I've never used a Kindle or a, um, like a reader device thing. So it would have to literally be the physical objects. And I don't know, maybe I'd have some type of magical netting or something that allows them to not be heavy so that I could take all of them um, with me. Cause I don't, I think even in, in the end times, I will still be the librarian that's trying to like document and archive and preserve um, in some ways. So probably like an Audre Lorde book, a Toni Morrison book, Maybe like pleasure activism or emergent strategies, one of those. Yeah, those are the top three. And then I'm an, I'm like kind of a nudist at heart. I don't really actually like clothing, but um, clothing's good. Yeah, depends on the climate of where where yeah. where the end times take us and climate change. Right. 
It might be like a it might be like a a multiple uses situation where one is like wearing all of Audre Lord. Yeah. <laughs> An Audre Lord onesie or something. Like yeah. Where you can just always look down and have the uses yeah. of the erotic. <laughs> right. Yes. Hazmat. Uses of the erotic hazmat suit, beekeeper type suit. Yeah. Awesome. <laughs> well, I have so enjoyed getting to spend time with your work and getting to talk to you. Thank you so much, Allison, for coming and having this conversation with us. Thank you so much for having me. This has been Queers at the End of the World. Before we go, we want to remind you that Queers at the End of the World is on Patreon. If you enjoy the show, you can help us make it. There's a lot of great extra audio and writing from me and Nat and our guests. And speaking of guests, next time on Queers at the End of the World, we'll be talking about the 2018 dystopian novel Moon of the Crusted Snow by Wabgesha Grice. It's going to be our last episode on wilderness survival, tying the conversations we've been having about wilderness directly to dystopia in a book that really examines this trope of the toxic white survivalist that we've been thinking so much about. And what's incredibly exciting, the author Wabgesha Grice himself is going to come on and talk with us. We're so excited, and we can't wait to bring you that in two weeks. Our show art is by the fabulous Ellie Yanagasawa, who you can find for your own commission at Ellie the Cosmic Jelly. The music for this episode was La Fin des Ericots by Tintamare. You can find us at queerworlds.com or at queerworldspodcast on Instagram. If you enjoyed the show, we would really, really appreciate it if you'd rate and review us. It helps people find us, and it lets us know that you're out there listening. And tell a friend who you think will enjoy it. That's by far the best way for folks to find out about the podcast. All right. Good luck out there, dear hearts. <laughs>